Welcome to Island Idols. I'm Barry Menikoff calling in from Honolulu, and you are... Aaron Menikoff calling in from Atlanta, and this is a podcast about books and life. Welcome back to Island Idols. Here we are, Dad, for episode number 30, and the topic of our conversation today is a writer by the name of Erwin Shaw. And Dad, before we get into Irwin Shaw, I know that you have a lot to say. Uh, we want to know how you're doing on the island of Oahu. Well, I'm doing well, thank you. And as you probably know, your brother and his family have been visiting with me for two weeks. So I've been overwhelmed. My house has been taken over by my son and my daughter-in-law and my grandchildren. And I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it very much. They leave this evening, and they actually left the house to give us uh, some quiet for our recording, but uh, they'll be back before their actual departure for return to Portland. That was very kind of them. You have three very interesting and different children, don't you, Dad? I do, and as soon as this one leaves, your sister has let me know she's coming out within a couple of weeks, as soon as she gets her vaccination shot next week, and she's on the plane right after that. I'm glad you're able to see both of them, and uh, I wish I was a little bit closer so I could hop on a plane as well. One of my friends said, well, I expect Atlanta to be calling next. Well, Atlanta is calling right now, but in a different context. In a different context, Uh, sure, but with modern technology, uh, we are able to talk to one another and see one another and even record our conversations. I know that's an obvious thing to say, and yet uh, it doesn't get old to me, uh, being able to do this. Actually, I want to let our listeners know that the two of us have uh, both uh, gotten new microphones, and we are as excited as if it were Christmas time <laughs> with a new toy. Dad, you're not supposed to share that. It makes us look like we're not professional. And yet we are professional because we got new microphones. That's right. And we got them from, I got them from a very big, uh, you know, uh, audio store. So I feel very professional, even though they send me catalogs with material I can never use. Well, it has, it has been helpful uh, partnering with Harry Duran and uh, Fullcast because I can just shoot him an email and say, can you recommend a different microphone? And, uh, and he did just that. And so we are both sporting new hardware, and that's pretty great, Dad, for our 30th episode. And uh, Dad, our last episode was so interesting to me. We, we stepped back and discussed the nature of art. You really didn't want us to talk so much about the question of what is beauty, and I kept pushing and pushing us in that direction. As you uh, reflect upon that last episode, I'm curious if there's any, any, anything that you feel like we need to wrap up about that, that conversation about what makes literature good. Uh, actually, now I had completely forgotten that uh, that uh, you were going. You might have asked, you might be asking me that. And the episode was so long ago; it's actually you know receded into the into the distance. But one thing I, I recall thinking after was you were very shrewd in holding my feet to the fire with respect to the question of what was my particular view of what made literature great as opposed to, you know, what made it merely, you know, passable or adequate. And I realized that uh, I've always resisted you know, trying to come up with a manifesto such as you presented. You had certain ideas about what you thought created, you know, transcendent art, and you were able to list them, and you were doing as what I said was really the work of uh, a traditional literary theorist and historian. And I've always resisted that, although I've always, I taught a course, for uh, it was one of my standard courses, was the history of critical theory, Western critical theory, and largely English, uh, I never really like to subscribe to a particular, you know, uh, position that would lock me in to say, well, this doesn't fit the criteria. And I think 
I think it comes largely from my own experience as a young young boy, as a young man, reading popular literature, then going to the university and taking courses in English where I was told what was great literature, and having a hard time trying to adjust what I enjoyed from what was considered to be, you know, high art or art. And I, I lived with that kind of suspension through graduate school, and you just continued on. And I remember when I started working on Robert Louis Stevenson, having written a dissertation on Henry James, Stevenson was considered a children's writer, not a serious literary figure. And I had to reconcile what I was doing with what I had uh, been taught as to what was canonical and what was acceptable. And so this is a long discussion that could go on and on and on, but I will say that today, the figure of Erwin Shaw falls right smack into that question. You know, Shaw was a enormously successful popular writer. And as he himself said, you know, what does popular mean? Balzac was popular. You know, Dickens was popular. Does popular mean that that's a, that's a negative term? But of course, in uh, largely critical circles, popular is sort of a pejorative because it means uh, you're... Even Stevenson Iman said, he says, there must be something wrong with me. Too many people are reading me. Sometimes accessibility can be criticized. If you're too accessible, you must your your writing must lack some type of nuance or some kind of depth, and that seems to be a common criticism uh, given against some writing. As a matter of fact, you know we we have if we take the figure of Mark Twain. Mark Twain was only you know it's really been only in the late twentieth century that Mark Twain was suddenly elevated to the status of a literary, major literary artist. For the rest, he was viewed as a kind of popular entertainer, enormously successful, you know, enormously readable, but not really to be taken on the same level, say, of Henry James. And there was a famous cultural critic named Bernard DeVoto who wrote a book once, Turn East, Turn West. And he said, turn east, you turn to Henry James. Turn west, you turn to Mark Twain. And of course, the east is where everything is fashionable and the west is where everything is, is popular. So the issue of popularity versus, you know, seriousness is a, is a long-standing issue in, uh, in literary criticism. And it, always, and, and it always reaches down into the levels of popular journalism. The New York Times book review, reviewing books, you say, uh, popular television people talking about books. And, you know, if it's a popular book, is it a serious book? I mean, is it a book just for the moment? It's, we could go on with this subject for a long time. I don't want to just, I don't want to absorb the conversation on short today with these questions, but these questions are always there in the background when you're talking about a writer. Well, and different people have different gifts, don't they? And different abilities, because this is true in the field of theology. So not, mer- not many people know the name John Owen, but John Owen was uh, probably the most influential theologian uh, in, in English history, uh, just a, a towering figure in the Puritan movement. But everyone knows the name John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Those two individuals had had uh, the same theology with some differences with regard to baptism. But uh, John Bunyan was able to popularize this theology for the masses in a way that, although John Owen's sermons were certainly listened to by normal people in pews, and his reading, his his writing is still read by pastors and theologians and some, you know, Christians today, but it never had the popularity of the writing of an author like like John Bunyan. So this this uh, relationship between you know things that are maybe more more difficult to understand and things that are communicated more clearly is something that happens in all sorts of fields. But I appreciate you talking about the way I, I put your feet to the fire. I simply knew that you had standards and that you wanted your classes to understand the difference between what's great and good. And uh, in my, my impression is just because you don't have maybe a, a checklist in the back of your mind doesn't mean there isn't a lifetime of experience going into why you may or may not choose a certain book. And I think what's interesting to me is that part of your career was, in a sense, educating 
so many people about the value of Robert Louis Stevenson. Not that he needed your help. Of course, he's an amazing, was an amazing writer. But you argued that he needs to be more appreciated than he has been. And, uh, and that required you to know what was good about his work. So that's why I was, that's why I was pressing you. I mean, that's a point I was going to make myself, but you said it better for me. When I started working on Stevenson and I started wondering what his position was, and I kept going forward because I knew that this was, a, this was an important writer. And I knew that because I had spent so many years studying people like James and serious writers. So I, didn't th- I, I, I had enough confidence in my judgment, knowing what was really good, to be able to say, well, this, this, I'm, I can go forward with this. I'm not wasting my time or spinning my wheels on something that's not worth, worth the effort. Right, right. Well, Dad, we don't know where this conversation about Irwin Shaw is going to go, but let's go ahead and start with some factoids about Irwin Shaw. For example, he is a fellow New Yorker, born in 1913, and a student at Brooklyn College where he withdrew because he failed calculus. But he went back and graduated. He did go back. And unlike you, he played football. He, was, he played football in Brooklyn College, had a football team. When I was going to Brooklyn College, they had uh, banished football. So he's, he, was, uh, he was an early, he was an athlete. He was an enormously, you know, he was, a, he was built like a football player. And uh, he was in the first graduating class of Brooklyn College. So uh, that was that was a mark that I always considered, you know, you know, I always liked that that thought. When you were at Brooklyn College, how well known was he? No, no. I mean, Brooklyn College did very little in terms of and they now have an Irwin Shaw collection. But uh, it's uh, it's so minimal as to be, you know, insignificant. The thing about Shaw that was so interesting was that he, well, he became, you know, he started writing very early. He was writing radio plays when he was uh, uh, in his early 20s, maybe even in, yeah, in his early 20s, he started writing radio plays. He had the play called Bury the Dead that was very successful and went on, you know, when he was, uh, is actually still still considered one of his primary, you know, achievements. Or, and he was, he, was, he was 23 years old and he had a play on Broadway. I mean, that's, that, right. that's spectacular. It's, it's amazing. Uh, I think one of the people, one, the director was supposed to have said, I don't believe he wrote that play and I don't believe he can read it. <laughs> uh, so he was, uh, he was an enormously talented guy and he was very successful and very, much, and, and very driven. And very quickly, you know, his talents, you know, were picked up by Hollywood. He went out to Hollywood and he worked in Hollywood and he wrote screenplays in Hollywood. So he has a Hollywood experience. And then, of course, uh, he came back to New York and then he was in the war. And when he was in the war, he was in George Stevens, who's a famous uh, Hollywood director. He was in George Stevens. He ran a kind of mobile unit. And so he was, uh, he was with George Stevens's uh, camera and photography and roving mobile unit through the war. And uh, he was one of the first, that he, was, he was the first chief of that unit to, to liberate Paris, to get rent, to arrive in Paris during the liberation of Paris. So, and of course he started also writing short stories, which is what the subject of this is ostensibly is today. And he started writing short stories, which he started publishing in the New Yorker, Esquire. And uh, his early fame and his, le- and his critical fame always seemed to rest on the short stories. That is, later on, you know, critics said his novels were just, you know, commercial you know, pot boilers, but his short stories, his early short stories had a certain kind of, you know, a style and elegance to them, and they are what he will rest upon. And the two stories, two of the stories that we talked about today, we're talking about today, the girls in their summer dresses and the 80-yard run were considered old chestnuts. That is, they would appear in short story anthologies over and over again. Not a, no other stories of his do, do I recall ever showing up in anthologies the way those two did. I mean, I certainly, I, I never read The Young Lions or Rich Man, Poor Man, but because The Young Lions was a movie and Rich Man, Poor Man was a, a very popular uh, miniseries, I, I have a vague recollection that these were popular. 
at just how famous, you know, he died of prostate cancer when he was 71 in 1984, but just, just how famous was he? Can you give us a sense of, of his popularity? I mean, certainly Young Lions and Rich Man, Poor Man were popular, but, but how popular was Erwin Shaw? Erwin Shaw was very popular. I mean, I came across a, a, a note in, I think it was his biography, that said at the time of his death in 1981, there were 14 million copies of his books in print. Now, I don't know what that means, 14 million copies in print. Uh, but suffice it to say that uh, his books were in print and he was a, he was a best-selling author. Mm-hmm. And he was known for the, for the movies. I mean, everybody knows The Young Lions, but uh, one movie, mm-hmm. Two Weeks in Another Town, which is based on one of his best novels that by the same title, was directed by Vincent Minnelli and starred Kirk Douglas. And that was a big deal. And one of his movies starred Marlon Brando. That was The Young Lions. Okay. Uh, the Young Lions, we should stop it. The Young Lions was uh, Shaw's novel about World War II. He'd been in the war, you, they told you, with the Stevens unit, but it meant he traveled through all of those war, uh, those war uh, theaters, and he liberated Paris. The Young Lions is a story that tries to, you know, to trace three, two soldiers, one of whom is Jewish, and a German, Marlon Brando played the German, and trace their lives from before the war and then through the war. So you can see Shaw always had a tendency to want to, uh, to want to capture the larger picture, which is not what you do in a short story, but in the novels he wanted to capture a larger picture of the way the world was as at the time. And actually I would make an aside here because my sister, your aunt, was a great fan of Irwin Shaw. And I said to her, what is it about him that you liked? And she said she liked the stories, but she liked that the people were real. And she liked that the times that he was writing about were reflected in his stories, that that, that was the way people lived and that was the way people were, and that they were unsentimental and that there was underneath the set a kind of decency that and compassion that she uh, she uh, noticed in in the reading so she was he was one of her favorite favorite writers for those reasons now rich man poor man which was i think the second miniseries on television which revived his popularity uh, rich man poor man is i think is a terrific a terrific book and it does the same thing it does that generational that tracing of family not just through a certain particular moment in time but through years and and through time so that you see them changing as they face all the crises that they go through and uh because a book is so readable you know you tend to want to say well it can't be that serious if i read it that easily uh, Shaw's prose is plain, but it's not, you know, it's not simplistic, and uh, it's clear, and it's evocative, and he's able to manage that over, you know, over the stretch of uh, of a novel like Rich Man, Poor Man. And then in a something sm- shorter, like Voices of a Summer Afternoon, I think it's a marvelous short novel. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going through a lot of general observations. Well, you've taken my adjectives. I had crisp about his writing. It was crisp. I said spare. I said introspective and uh, entertaining. So that, that's, that's all positive. You know, Dad, what's interesting to me is that we're doing this this season of Island Idols talking about the short story. And the fact of the matter is, if I go and talk to a bunch of my friends and ask them, what did you do last night? Uh, I don't think any of them is going to say, I read a short story. Some might say, I read a novel. Many would say, you know, I watched something on Netflix. But I don't think any would say, I read a short story. And Shab noticed this in his own lifetime and blamed it on television. And and he actually, this was an inter- interesting comment to me. He said that so often now the, the, those who might have written short stories are going and writing uh, commercials or going and writing for popular magazines like Newsweek. And so it's not just that our tastes for the short story changed. He seems to argue that the supply of, of, of writers actually diminished 
uh, and I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. You know how that goes. But I wonder what what you would say about the uh, the rise and fall of the short story in in your generation. Well, I think I don't know what to say. I think the uh, the market for short stories is we talked about this before. Is is there is only one magazine, the New Yorker, that publishes short stories as part of its, you know, feature. So to get into the New Yorker as a short story writer, you've, uh, you know, you may as well, you may as well have entered, you know, passed through the gates mm-hmm. of heaven. Mm-hmm. But when Shaw was writing, there were other, there were other avenues, places like, you know, Esquire published short stories. Maybe they still do, but there were, you know, there were still magazines like uh, Saturday, Saturday Digest, Saturday Review of Literature, Collier's Life. I mean, they were markets for the short story that were still available for working authors, working writers. Now the markets for short stories are only in small magazines, small literary magazines, which are published by university presses. So it's not a commercial market. So writing short stories is nothing that, you, you cannot make a living writing short stories. You see, I mean, Shaw was getting paid for those short stories, and this was, we see this, of course, in one of the stories you pick out called, the only he was doing for radio. That's another area. He was writing for radio, and main currents in American thought describes a, a, again, a, describes a professional writer. You may say he's a hack writer, but all he's doing is trying to see how many words can I get out, how much am I going to get paid for it per, per word, and how am I going to support my family in my you we make with their increasing demands. So the markets are very different. Yeah. It's interesting to me because in my lifetime, uh, I've obviously well you and I both lived with the the rise of the internet. But in in um in my Christian circles, internet websites have become you know very popular for promoting Christian, let's just call it Christian nonfiction. Uh, various essays on theological or ethical topics. And every day on these websites, there are new essays and new articles ranging from 600 words to hmm. 3,000 word, on and on and on. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there is no Christian fiction on on these, on these platforms. And, um, you know, writing fiction is really, really difficult you know, to communicate well and clearly and make a point. And yet, it is a powerful form of communication. Yes, but, you know, uh, the times that, well, it's not just the Christian networks. I mean, if you see this, if you go into what you would call the secular networks, I mean, the market is for is for nonfiction prose, whether it's political punditry, whether mm-hmm. it's social commentary, I mean, even if you look at the newspapers, the New York Times and the Washington Post, two stalwarts, I mean, the way they have their websites set up, you know, it's just to try to attract readers for essentially, you know, daily journalism and daily activities and daily social life. Right. And fiction requires a kind of distance and a kind of uh, a temperament to step back a little bit and reflect. Which is something that he pointed out. I mean, he he argued at one point that to be a, a fiction writer, uh, it takes it takes a lot of time, and you need to be willing to have some time to write where you're not simply writing to feed yourself. Uh, you've got to be willing to you've got to be willing to live on little to uh, have the time to write what you want to write and not what the newspaper publisher wants you to write. That's where the main currents in American thought comes from. You know that. Yeah, let that, let's take a few of these short stories that uh, that you reread and I read for the very first time, uh, and let's start off with the one that seemed to me to be the most autobiographical, the short story "Main Currents of American Thought" about a young man named Andrew who's twenty five years old. He's a writer. He appears to be supporting his parents and his sister with his writing, or at least substantially supplementing their income or their lifestyle. Ironically, he doesn't have the time to work on what he really wants to work on, which is a play. And um, I really struggled to understand why it was called Main Currents of American Thought. Main Currents in American Thought, isn't it? Dad, this is what I was going to try to stump you about. The, uh, the title of the short story 
is main currents of American thought. Uh, uh-huh. The Good book that point. is that he mentions purchasing at Macy's is a book called Main Currents in, in American America. thought, okay, okay. an overview of U.S. history, and so I'm just wondering. There's got to be something to him changing the "in" to an "of." Yeah. Well, I was the the observation I was going to make was, and this is this is you know partisan pleading. I mean, Shaw was at Brooklyn College, and that shows you the the, the value of a quality education. I'm sure his professors would, would be mentioning Parrington in their American literature classes. Today, nobody would even know who Parrington was. But Parrington was a standard, you know, uh, a standard, you know, figure in the history of American literature. And uh, he was very interesting because he was a Westerner. And uh, most American literary history focused on the East and largely Boston. And there's one thing he said that I could never forget. Somebody published a literary history of America uh, in, uh, I think, uh, the name escapes me. I was going to say Barrett Wendell. Maybe that's the author. And uh, Parrington reviewed the book, and he said... He said it should have been called the literary history of Harvard College because everybody in it was, you know, right, right. was a graduate of Harvard An College. Intellectual but anyway, history of that, some kind. I didn't know if you know the the book. I haven't read Parrington's book, but he chronicles the history of America and these these stages. And the the final stage is uh, something called um, mechanistic pessimism. And I here you see Andrew, this young writer, and he's sort of trapped. He's trapped into the machine, the machinery of of writing to pay the bills. And I thought maybe there was a, a sort of a connection to this sort of modern pessimism and living in this industrialized world where he really wants to be a romantic and go out to Walden's Pond and write what he wants to write, but he can't do that. I didn't know if there might be a connection to yeah. that idea. Well, I mean, you know, you got, he sure grew up during the Depression. You know, he was in... And one of his stories, I don't know which one it is, I, I remember he's sitting and he's in the house and his parents are in the house and, they, and they're keeping the, everything, uh, all the lights are out because the bill collectors are coming around. So they don't want anybody to think they're in the house because, you know, they're going to come and asking them to pay the gas bill or pay the electric bill. And I mean, that's, a, that's an image of uh, the way the world was as, as, as Shaw experienced it. And that sense of you know writing because you have to feed your family, even when the fa- even when it's not feeding your family, even when it's feeding the desire of the mother to make sure that the assist the daughter has somebody to yes. go out with, even though it's going to from from his point of view is sort of useless and she's playing and she's not going to have any luck. I mean, there's a sense in which Shaw is always describing the battles that people wage just to get ahead and just to survive. I mean, you don't think of it that way, but that's the truth. I mean, there's always the question, even in Tip on a Jet Jockey, you know, the guy doesn't have any money, you know, when the, when his when his friend's wife comes to him, he's, he takes out money, gives her a bill, but I mean, how's he going to survive? Yeah, 5,000 francs. There's, a, there's, there's always an awareness of, of the way the world is and how people, rich man, poor man, some people have a lot and some people don't have very much at all. And they all have to work, you know, to make their make their way through it. And there are always these moral issues involved. You know, why does the person in main currents of American thought feel he has to write a, 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 an, another radio play to support his sister or to buy his mother furniture? Why can't he just say, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it"? But there's a moral moral qualm. He feels. Ties to the family is more important, even though who really cares about whether he's a writer or not. You know, these issues that always show up in Shaw's fiction. Dad, let me give our listeners a a little taste of Andrew's frustration with the fact that everyone wants something from him because he's able to provide through his writing. And yet, uh, as frustrated as he is, he lands, he concludes with a willingness to help. He sa- So Andrew says, everybody comes to me, Andrew yelled, his voice suddenly high. Nobody leaves me alone, not for a minute. He was crying now, and he turned to hide it from his mother. She looked at him, surprised, shaking her head. She put her arms around him. 
Just do what you want to, Andrew. That's all. Don't do anything you don't want to do. Yeah, Andrew said. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll give you the money. I'm sorry I yelled at you. You know, it's wonderful because, you know, you can see the mother is saying, oh, yes, do what you want to do. But she's really saying, give me the money. Yeah, there's a, we would call that passive-aggressive manipulation. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But as I, as I read it, Dad, and recognizing Andrew's 25 years old, I couldn't help but juxtapose a 25-year-old you know, from the 1920s or 30s versus the stereotype of a millennial today. Millennials want to be part of something big. In fact, I was sitting down with breakfast with a man uh, who runs a, a, a nonprofit, and uh, you know he just commented on how difficult it is to get people to commit to a job in the f- for the long term. And uh, reading re- reading main currents of American thought and entering the life of this twenty five year old, I thought this is a different generation entirely. You don't want to throw millennials under the bus right now, and I think that's probably wise. It's impossible, I guess. In my age, I realize that uh, we are creatures of our times and we're creatures of our experience. And, you know, to complain that you're not doing this the way I used to do that is, in a way, it's fruitless. Because it, to the people that you're complaining or who you're really chastising, it doesn't mean anything. And to yourself, you're trying to, you know, justify the way you are, you know, when the world has changed. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a fruitless enterprise, and it doesn't do anybody any good. I mean, I, 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 I recognize this in, you know, in my, the book I'm writing now. Uh, I see, you know, my generation, the way we acted and what, the way we responded to situations is different. Like, it's very clear it's different from the way people do it in another time or today. And I can say, well, we were smarter, we were better, but it's not true. It's just we were different. And those differences depend upon, you know, the times and it depends upon the experience. And uh, it, it, it's, it's always astonishing to me how people in positions of power and everything insist all they have to do is mouth words and this is the way it is. And, you know, if you're not marching to this drama, there's something wrong with you. I mean, basically the great thing about literature and the great thing about art is that the people make it have imagination. And imagination, I don't mean they can invent things, but they have an, a way of seeing things that most people caught up in the world, such as the character and main currents of American thought, have a hard time dealing with, since they deal with things and they live with protocols and they have bureaucracies and they have a hard time breaking out of it. And the shorthand, you know, cliche is, well, you got to think outside the box. But I don't know what that means, really. But I do know, I do believe that imagination makes the difference between being able to rise above, you know, your petty complaints and, and, and also to see the world in other people's eyes. And I would say imagination and introspection, because when you read The 80-Yard Run, which is a story about Christian Darling. And it starts when he is uh, 20 years old and he's playing football at his university. And he's a, you know, he's not the star, but he's really, really good. And he's really, really popular. And there's the, you know, there's the hope that he's going to be even better. But even though he doesn't become the best on the team, he's just a standout athlete. And then 15 years go by and uh, Shaw creatively goes back and forth between when Christian Darling is 20 and when he's 35, but he ended up marrying uh, his college sweetheart whose father was very rich and gave him a job in New York, but the business went under. His father-in-law committed suicide, and now this uh, once, you know, really popular football player is now a 35-year-old man who's basically out of work. And his wife goes and gets a job and immediately becomes this rising executive. I don't know if it was a magazine or somehow in the fashion industry, but she's a rising executive. So her star, you know, is rising. And in the short story, you're seeing this 35-year-old man's star plummeting, and he really can't handle it. 
And so he withdraws into depression and bitterness towards his wife. And uh, I'll hold off on, on, on the climax of this short story for a moment, but I couldn't help but, but, but realize how, how introspective, whether Shaw was writing about himself, I'm not implying that, but he brings you right into the, the heart of something we all can appreciate, and that's life not turning out the way we expected. That's exactly right. And the thing that's so interesting about that story is the, the character is not a bad person. You know, he's not, you know, a... Uh, he's not a monster. ...negative figure. There's nothing wrong with him. It's just that, you know, he lacks imagination and he lacks the desire to grow intellectually. You see, so his wife keeps trying to say, well, don't you want to read this or don't you want to see this? And he doesn't want to do anything. All he wants to do is, you know, live kind of uh, close, you know, to home without having to think too much. And she's rising in the world and she's, she's taken the, the, uh, the loss of the business from her father and the loss of all that money and turned it around, turned herself around and adapted. Whereas his great moment was that moment where he caught that, that he had that 80 yard run. That was his great, that was the high point of his life. And he's never really been able to reproduce it. Do you know what was so interesting was the way the way his wife seemed to make allowances for his deficiencies. You know, you certainly get the impression that she wanted him to be involved with her career and and go out with her, but uh, she's not antagonistic towards him. Although as time goes on, admittedly, you know, she cools towards him and it seems inevitable. Inevitably, she just finds it's not possible, but she keeps, she keeps trying to help him. And one of the things that's so interesting about Shaw is he has so many stories in which he deals with marriages, just as he does in his novels. Yes. And how these marriages, you know, they go through their own uh, life cycles. Yeah. But he can do it in the short story. I mean, the ADR run is really a short story about a marriage. You know, when you when you first introduced me to the topic of the perfect short story, I didn't know really what you meant. But having read Shaw and seeing what he did in just a few pages, I think I can almost appreciate, you know, the way a short story can just be so carefully crafted that it brings maybe one idea to a head in a really compact fashion. And uh, I've never done it, but th that's got to be really hard to do. And Shaw himself said, you know, he says, people think it's easy, but I sweat over every word. So mixed doubles is another example. I want to hold off on maybe the most popular, the girls in their summer dresses. But in mixed doubles, this husband and wife are on a weekend trip that they can't really afford. The husband seems to be leading them to live outside their means. They've been married only six years. And it's so fascinating. It's an entire story basically about what a wife is thinking while her husband in is sort of bragging and complaining on the tennis court and the entire story that's really all it is yeah but the entire tennis the entire story is a, is a tennis game mhm mm and in the course of a tennis game he unravels a marriage or he exposes a marriage let's put it that way yeah while they're playing doubles tennis the marriage is suddenly revealed to the reader in all its glory. And that's an amazing, I think it's an amazing feat. So this husband is presented as basically a petty excuse-making man. But the, the wife is, um, she's fairly charitable. I mean, it's been six years, you know, at the start of this story, she says in, things about him that are quite endearing. But his uh, tantrum, if you will, that maybe only she really notices on the tennis court, just brings to mind the deep flaws in his character that she's been bearing with or overlooking. And uh, and her conclusion about marriage, I guess Shaw's conclusion about marriage that he puts in her mind is really, uh, really powerful. Uh, in fact, let me go ahead and, and read what, what she thinks. This is what she says. Marriage, after all, was an up and down affair and in many ways a fragile and devious thing and was not to be examined too closely Marriage was not a bank statement or a foreign policy or an x-ray photograph in a doctor's hand. 
You took it and lived through it. And maybe a long time later, perhaps the day before you died, you totaled up the accounts. If you were of that turn of mind, but not before. And if you were a reasonable, sensible, mature woman, you certainly didn't do your additions and subtractions on a tennis court every time your husband hit a ball into the net. Jane smiled at herself and shook her head. Wow. I think it's, I think it's really, it's not just clever. It has a kind of brilliance, you know. That on a t- I always remember that story. That's why I recommended it to you. You know, that in the course of a tennis game, you can, you can show so much about a couple and about a marriage, a subject that Shaw wrote about endlessly. And another thing is, you know, he's, he's, Shaw was a notorious womanizer. I shouldn't say this, but... Is that I mean, right? In the little bit of research I did, I, I wasn't able to really learn much about the man. I mean, he loved women, and he was attractive. He was a magnet for women. And yet, when you, when you read some of the stories, the pictures of women he, give, he, he presents are often really more attractive and more sensitive than the men that he right. writes about. You know, maybe that's not surprising, but uh, you see this in so many, in so much, so much of his work and so much of his writing. Dad, I'm wondering because you know, over the over the months as we've talked about stories, I think I've been a little bit sensitive to the uh, accusation or the observation of how I can be tempted to look for a moral in a story, and when maybe the moral isn't there, but I might be looking for it because of what I do as a pastor. Uh, but when you read Shaw, I don't know how Aunt Miriam put it, but there is there is some some morality there. I'm wondering how does he do it without being preachy, because he is he is saying some things that are pretty hard hitting, and he's not he's not saying them, but he's presenting some ideas that really do have an opinion uh, embedded in them, and yet he does it in a way that's not preachy. I think part of it is because fundamentally, I think he, he, uh, he, he thinks life is tough, mm-hmm. and he thinks that uh, there, but for the grace of God, go we all. Mm-hmm. And he believes that uh, compassion, really, for people, is the only thing that uh, that saves us. And you know, I mean, to, to switch to the personal, Shaw was known as one of the most generous writers of his generation. What do you mean by that? Gay Talese, I don't know if you know the name Gay Talese. Gay Talese was a uh, journalist for the New York Times, very big in the, in the, uh, the new journalism movement. His wife, Nan Talese, had a was an editor and had her own print imprint at one of the big publishing houses. When Gay Talese and his wife were in Rome, where Shaw lived, uh, he arranged for them to, you know, he arranged for their marriage. And they never forgot it. And they gave him a party years later in New York. And Talese gets up and he says, you know, in this world, writers who are so insecure and so bitchy and always carping about everything, Shaw is the most generous person, most generous writer he has ever met or known. And everybody started getting up and making, you know, toasts. He lived in Switzerland. He lived abroad as an expatriate. And, you know, he was basically the, um, you know, the uh, the central figure in this small town in Switzerland where everybody come, came to pay court, came through in the summer. You know, he'd treat them around. He'd show them the ski, res- ski runs and everything. Everybody, everybody, you know, admired him. James Salter, the great American writer, the author of Sport in the Pastime, had a memoir, and he, you know, he, he said, he named his son Shaw after Irwin Shaw, and he said Shaw told him one thing he never forgot, and what was that? He says, Shaw said to him, never be intimidated by anybody. Now, that's a big thing to say, but it's a man who had the confidence in himself to pursue Shaw, to pursue his own his own passion for writing and his own his, pursue his his work and live the, live a life that was not that was not unflawed by any means, but that was the life he knew. Dad, our 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 podcast is called Island Idols: Books and Life, and before we talk about one more short story, and I wish we could give more attention to. Uh, 
uh, a longer short story, Tip on a Dead Jockey. I don't know that we're going to really get to that. I want to talk about the girls in their summer dresses. But before we do, recognizing again that subtitle, Books and Life, I want to uh, I want to talk about an event that happened in Atlanta just a couple of weeks ago now that undoubtedly you heard about a young man who uh, went and uh, attacked uh, three massage spas in the Atlanta area and uh, several murders. Uh, he was a 20-year-old, 21-year-old man and just a great tragedy. Uh, this is a, a troubled, troubled troubled man and uh, you know our hearts are pained for all of these families that lost loved ones because of his horrific actions as the days have unfolded one of the observations made by the public press is that he was a member of a of a of a baptist church in the atlanta metro area and uh, that that church actually disfellowshipped him not as a way of wiping their hands clean of him but as a way of saying the obvious, you, you know, um, his, what, how he's lived his life is not compatible with true Christianity, uh, to, say, to say the least. But one of the other narratives that have come out from this is that the sexual ethic uh, taught by his local church over the years of his young life fostered in this boy uh, a sort of repressed, hostile, attitude toward the opposite sex, which, though this obviously doesn't happen with every young man, boiled over into these acts of murder. So I've been reading two or three articles that have been basically chastising uh, the church for its views on sexuality. And in particular, we're talking about, you know, chastity and singleness. Um. The reason why I bring that up is because I was really surprised in this short story, The Girls in Their Summer Dresses, to see a nuanced uh, approach to the topic of lust, written by someone who is not a Christian, but someone who was able to describe the wandering eye of a husband and show how it could actually hurt a human being, a wife, and make a marriage less than it could be. And that just, it struck me to be reading that short story, The Girls in Their Summer Dresses, while I would argue a related sexual ethic taught by not just Christian churches, but taught by religions, is uh, so often criticized today. So what do you want to say about the girls in their summer dresses? Why has it been so popular? And what do you want to say about it, Dad? Well, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know why it's been so, it's been so popular. Partly, I think, because it's such a marvelous depiction of what you think of as, what you see on the surface as this perfect, lovely young couple. They're walking down the streets of New York City on a beautiful day beautiful day they're just going to stop and have a little coffee and you pick up from the very start the husband has a wandering eye what used to be called the wandering eye he can't not mm -hmm. look at a pretty girl and there you know so many so many women not enough time you know mm -hmm. and the wife at first she's used to this she's sort of trying to you know you know, dismiss it as just, you know, well, he just likes a pretty woman. Mm -hmm. But gradually, you can see it becomes, you know, it becomes a, uh, a habit that is destructive. It's uh, hurtful to the wife, and ultimately, it's destructive of their relationship. And the irony is that he himself realizes it, and when he's forced by the wife to make the admission he admits it. Mm -hmm. He makes the admission. And at the same time, he recognizes that he's really destroying their life. He's destroying their marriage. Now, whether this is an example of lust or whether it's just a portrait of an individual man who's struck by, you know, who has a, you know, a fancy for good looking women. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's enough truth to life for other people, many men have lovely, lovely wives and have wonderful marriages, but still have an eye for a pretty face, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but it doesn't destroy their marriage. They learn to somehow 
adjust or cope or, or hide it or whatever. But in this case, this guy is not able to do that. And so there are always going to be girls in his summer dresses. And as long as there are girls in his summer dresses, this guy is going to be going after them. And that sense of, I think, universality, you know, touches on everybody's recognition. And at the same time, of course, it's a very individual situation. And it is remarkable that he gets into the head of the young wife. I mean, Erwin Shaw gets into the head of this young woman. At one point, uh, you summarized it well, but let me give you Shaw's words uh, writing for the wife. He says, I try not to, well, she says, I try not to notice it, Francis said referring to her husband's wandering eye. I try not to notice it, Francis said, as though she were talking to herself. I try to make believe it doesn't mean anything. Some men are like that, I tell myself. They have to see what they're, what they're missing. And uh, it's a very sensitive, respectful uh, approach to her. He doesn't uh, castigate her as a prude or as a woman who doesn't understand you know, masculinity. No, he describes her as someone who's genuinely being hurt by her husband. And I was I was surprised when I, I read the way Shah presented her. Well, you said it earlier, I think. I probably didn't pick up on it. You know, Shaw has a lot of... There's a, there's, a, there's a great deal of introspection in Shaw's stories, which is why you can get so much out of such a small, you know, amount of... Uh, such in such a small space he's able to he's able to reveal so much because he goes into people's minds that's one of the things he does marvelously uh in that short novel i suggested voices on a summer on a summer day and people don't think of that if they think of Shaw out because they think the young lions they think well that's all about war or they think rich man poor man but those are those are books that really go into the minds of these characters in the young lions, the German soldier, the young Jewish soldier, and the other American soldier who had a, you know, prosperous life and, you know, successful career. All of them are, are you know, entered into, you know, as if they were, no, I won't say as if they were Henry James, as if it was Henry James recording these stories, but in the same kind of introspective fashion. And I just wanted to touch on the tip of a dead jockey since you... I mean, no, I no, get no, hold it. on, hold on, Dad, if, if you could. Let's, let's touch on that in a moment. I just want to press ahead a little bit because I set up the conversation about the girls in their summer dresses with regard to this tragedy in Atlanta. And uh, I, I am not at all trying to put you on the spot. I genuinely want sort of your response to a couple themes in the Old and the New Testament. So you're familiar with Job, you know, the patience of Job, the man who experienced all that suffering. Uh, somewhere in the book of Job, Job says uh, something like, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. So that's Job in the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament and you find Jesus equating lust to adultery. Basically, not arguing that they're exactly the same thing, but at the heart of lust and at the heart of adultery, you find in 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 biblical language the same thing. You find you find sin. So I'm curious, in light of, you know, I, I guess in light of what Shaw was writing about girls in their summer dresses, when you hear that, let's just call it a Judeo-Christian sexual ethic. Do you think, boy, that's something that we need to uh, relegate to a more primitive era in history? Or do you think, well, that's very nice for those who hold to that? Or because what I'm reading in the papers is a real harsh criticism of, of that attitude towards the relationships between the sexes. What do you think as someone who's outside my circle? Look, I mean... I don't think the Baptist Church is responsible for that uh, killer's, you know, uh, rampage in Atlanta. I don't care what, how many days he went to church. I don't care how much, you know, how many, how much counseling or how much, uh, you know, uh, small group uh, uh, lessons he had. There's no that. That's that. That's the responsibility lies with him and his own psyche, and uh, you know. Uh, that's why I think when these when these acts happen, it always comes in the paper and say, "What is the motive?" I mean, as if that motive was important. I think that's that's just uh, 
beside the point. How do you explain? The motive is not is not the issue. I mean, anybody goes and does something so horrific, saying, well, they did it because of this, that doesn't explain it, and it certainly doesn't ration, justify it in any way. So I don't, I don't, that kind of thinking doesn't, doesn't, you know, impress me. As for, you know, the biblical relations, biblical attitudes towards sexuality and what is adultery, those things are, those are social conventions and social issues that every, every culture has to face on its own. And, uh, saying, you know, the, the church is responsible for sexual repression, it's, it's ridiculous. All the predators that are put behind bars are suddenly, you know, suddenly exposed in the Me Too movement. There's nothing to do with the church. There's nothing to do with, you know, it's their own, it's own, it's characters say, take a character from the, 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 the man and the girls in his summer dresses were suddenly pulled out of life and put into the form of a Harvey Weinstein. You know, it changes it all together. You know, the person in the in girls in the summer dresses is not going to pull a Harvey Weinstein. I mean, he's, you know, he's pretty much, he's doing enough damage to his own marriage. But I mean, we can't equate all these different actions to... Uh, well, I certainly appreciate hearing that, but it's a, that's a, it's a beautiful it is a beautiful short story I have to say, and using beautiful in all the ways that I did in the previous episode. Dad, what do you want to say about uh, tip for a dead jockey on a dead jockey? I just want to say that's a longer story, but it also brings to the fore one of Shaw's issues that we've been talking about, which is that there's a, there's always there's there's a moral issue that people have to face all the time. You know, do I do something? Knowing that it's really wrong, knowing that it's you know, it's uh, it's an act that is uh, will have you know negative consequences, or do I not do it? You know, so he brings this up in terms of you know, uh, is the character in there? This, but the re- what I wanted to bring about was was to bring up another aspect of sure that is his his international. A life, the life that he lived in Europe. This is a story set in France. That's right. It, it's set. It's set in France. It's in. It's in Paris. A, a young. It's after World War Two. Is that right? It's after World War Two. A young woman and her husband has been missing for thirty-two days, and she goes to an old war buddy of his, who's also living in in Paris and trying to make his way. And uh, we don't know what's happened. I mean, they don't have a lot of money, and the, the man is gone. And so the story, I'm not going to go into all the details of the story, but the story is the unfolding of what has happened to her husband. How is her husband's friend related to this? And, uh, and how is it all going to conclude? And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a joy to read. It's a marvelous story. And I think, I, I think it was turned into a movie or a, uh, at some point. But I wanted to use that as a segue into something else, another aspect of Shaw. Shaw was an expatriate. You know, after the second, we all think of the lost generation and the generation living in Paris after the First World War, the Hemingway Fitzgerald, you know, generation. But there was a generation living in Paris after the Second World War. Shaw was one of those. One of the reasons he lived there was because he was just sort of, you know, a leftist sympathizer and, you know, he was blacklisted in Hollywood and he went to, he went to Paris. Dad, do you know exactly? Do you know exactly what he was blacklisted for? I mean, do you know? Well, they thought that he was. He was. You know, he would. Oh, he would testify for people. He would sign letters and petitions. You know, he did this when he was at Brooklyn College. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was. A, he was a strong. He was a strong sympathizer with. You know, with the liberal and leftist causes. Mm-hmm. So, Art Bookwald was part of that group. I mean. Uh, James Baldwin, Richard Wright were living in Paris at the time. Now Shaw wrote a book of his called Paris, Paris. It is an absolutely marvelous evocation of the period in Paris that he lived through. And it's wonderfully illustrated by the great English artist Ronald Searle. I mean, you probably cannot get it except on an eBay or on a used list. But that was another aspect of Shaw that people don't even know about. That book never comes up when they write about him. He also wrote a marvelous uh, evocation of Brooklyn in Holiday Magazine. It's where I took the title of a stone mother. So as a professional writer, Shaw was not, is not does ought not to be, you know, you know, a pigeonholed as someone who wrote popular novels or someone who wrote, you know, good short stories. He wrote screenplays, he wrote radio plays, 
And he wrote wonderful, wonderful uh, memoir, Paris, Paris, which I think is, is, is certainly can be put alongside a movable feast if anybody wants to, you know, what it was like after the Second World War to live in Paris. Well, Dad, I had never read Erwin Shaw until you recommended him. Uh, I did purchase his book called, the title is, Short Stories, Five Decades. And uh, I really enjoyed each of the stories that we read for this podcast. And, uh, and I was surprised at how, how pleasing they were. So, Dad, thanks for the recommendation. And as always, thanks for the conversation. Great to talk to you, Aaron. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.